Well, my name's Paul Kingsnorth. Uh, I have been a writer for 20 years. Um, I have, I suppose, been an environmentalist and an activist throughout that period as well, on and off. Um, I'm the co-founder of the Dark Mountain Project. Um, I'm the author of a couple of non-fiction books and a collection of poetry, and I have a novel coming out this year. The novel that you're about to publish, uh, The Wake, isn't it called? Indeed, yes. Yeah. Was uh, was supported by a, a very uh, well done, I think, kind of uh, crowdfunding um, appeal. Uh, what was your experience of doing that? Was that the first time you had done a crowdfunding thing? No, um, the Dark Mountain Project, which we've been running for five years now, um, is very much, well, crowd, crowdfunding is very central to, to what we do. Um, the Dark Mountain Manifesto was originally funded by crowdfunding and uh, the first four of our annual collections of writing were all produced by crowdfunding as well. Um, we've moved to a subscriptions model now, but um, very central to what we do actually was was raising small amounts of money for, from a lot of different people who all pre-ordered the books, uh, which gave us the money to actually produce them because we didn't start Dark Mountain with any cash. Um, uh, what happened with The Wake um, is similar but slightly different. Um, it's being published by a fairly new publisher, which is only a few years old, which is called Unbound, which is a very interesting experiment in combining traditional publishing with crowdfunding. So the way that they work is that if the publisher likes your book or your idea for a book, they will produce a film with you and they will put the film up on their website along with the description of the book and an extract of it with you. Um, and they've effectively then got a package that they that they will um, send out to potential readers and you have to send out to potential readers as well. And if you get enough supporters pre-ordering your book um, so that you've covered the costs of the initial print run, then they'll go ahead and publish your book in a standard way. So it's a very interesting response to the decline in the publishing industry and the fact that writers find it difficult to make a living. Um, and it's also, interestingly, actually a return to... Uh, the time before we had a publishing industry, because obviously, although the internet is central to the way that they do it, um, the idea of funding books by subscriptions is actually something that was very popular in the 18th century. So we're really going back to a time before we had big central publishers which were, who were able to give writers big advances um, and using the web to um, attract readers to a project. So I, I've, I've enjoyed it, actually. I, was, I wasn't quite sure how I was going to enjoy it, having had books published by traditional publishers before, but I've really enjoyed engaging with the readers before the book comes out. And you do have this sense that rather than just creating a book which is going to be consumed by people buying it, you're actually creating a community around it before it even comes out, which for a writer is a nice thing to do. Writing is a very solitary kind of exercise, as you know. You know, you... you sit in your room just bashing stuff out so actually engaging with readers before the book comes out is, is quite a nice thing to do and with your experience with dark mountain is is your sense that that crowdfunding is something the potential of which we're only just starting to scratch or that it's somehow you know reached the end of what's possible for it where well it's interesting it's a good question because it's evolving i mean it was um, my co-founder at dark mountain dougald hine who introduced me to crowdfunding i hadn't really heard of it uh, in 2009 um and back then when we crowdfunded the manifesto there weren't that many people doing it um these days lots of people are crowdfunding a lot of things it's really caught on it's got into the mainstream media there's a huge amount of it going on which i think to some degree uh, lessens the impact of it because if everybody's crowdfunding all of their albums and all of their books and all the rest of it um, you know there's only so much money to go around there are only so many projects that you kind of want to support yourself or you can afford to support yourself so um, i don't think that means it doesn't work anymore it does for lots of people 
But I think that it's probably going to continue to evolve. I mean, Unbound is a bit of an evolution of crowdfunding in that way, in that it combines traditional publishing with crowdfunding. And it takes hopefully the best of both. So I think it's going to continue to evolve. But it's a really good tool for um, particular types of project to get support. And um, the, I think the, the first book of yours that I ever read was, was Real England, uh, yeah. which I really enjoyed and which had the subtitle The Battle Against the Bland. Um, does the fact that you're about to move to Ireland mean that you think that's a battle that we've lost? Um, well, uh, <laughs> good question. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm moving to Ireland for a number of reasons, not least because um, for a long time I have wanted to have a little bit of land and um, that I can work on and that I can afford and live mortgage-free and educate my kids at home. And it's just not something that I can actually afford to do in England anymore. Interestingly enough, in Britain these days, if you want to live simply, you've mostly got to be rich. Um, but... Uh, in terms of losing that battle, I mean, what we're looking at all over the Western world is this continual advance of, of the corporate economy. And it's it's wiping out um, a huge amount of color and character all over the place in, in, in terms of what's happened in England since I wrote that book. Um, it's a mixed it's a mixed bag, actually. If you go back and read Real England now and you start to look at the um, start to look at a lot of the campaigns that I wrote about um you find that some of those campaigns were actually won by the people who were fighting them and a lot of the things that they were talking about saving have been saved and you also find that others have been lost but the general picture certainly is is that this kind of march of the monoculture is going on um how long it will go on for in the face of climate change and peak oil and all of the other things that we all talk about is is a moot point but um certainly yeah i mean we, we can see what direction we're moving in at the moment mm. And uh, the the piece that you wrote a couple of years ago, the Confessions of a Recovering Environmentalist, which generated a lot of debate and discussion at the time, you said, um, it's all fine, I withdraw, you see, I withdraw from the campaigning and the marching, I withdraw from the arguing and the talked up necessity and all the false assumptions, I withdraw from the words, I'm leaving, I'm going out walking. So where have you been since then? What does that mm, look like? <laughs> Can you give us an update on your walking? Yeah, that was a piece that I wrote at the at a point where I felt that um, environmentalism had hit a wall, and I still feel that actually. And I, I, was, I stand by I stand by what I wrote in that essay. What it also is is a very personal essay. Um, it's not necessarily a piece of advocacy. I'm not suggesting anyone else should be doing the same thing. But um, I think I think that the I think the green movement has hit a wall, and I think that there are certain things that can't be achieved, and that's not being talked about, which is why I wanted to to withdraw from from my involvement in it um and really a lot of the journey that's been happening since then for me has taken me through up and down the dark mountain if you like um and it's taken me to a point where um i'm a lot more comfortable with not being in control and i'm a lot more comfortable with not knowing uh, and i feel that broadly speaking as a society as a civilization we tend to think that we're in control of what the future is going to look like or that we ought to be or that we can be. And I think that uh, applies to a lot of environmentalism as well. And we're just not. Um, I mean, you know, we're living in a country which is currently flooding in many parts of, uh, in many parts of the landscape. And we're in, we have absolutely no control over that. We have no control over the direction our climate's now going in. We can't even reduce the, the, the emissions that we continue to pump up into the atmosphere at an increasing rate. 
Um, and yet we labor under this illusion that if we can come up with the right plan, we can sort things out. And, and we can't. And once you accept that, you sort of walk off into this strange wilderness in which, um, yeah, in, in which you're not in control of things. And I'm, I'm exploring this territory in which, um, in which we're faced with, a, with an enormous change in the way that we live and an enormous change in all of the assumptions that we base our lives on. Um, and we can't really get a grip on, on where things are going. And, and um, it's, a, it's, a, it's an unsure place to be. And I think that we need to have a lot more honesty about exploring those kind of unsure places that we're finding ourselves in. We're moving into this age of, of really radical change and collapse, and we've no idea where we're going to be going or, or how we can keep a grip on, on the way that we live. And um, what what over the years I know with the Dark Mountain uh, camps and things and some of the writing you know there's been there's been overlaps and links with between the Dark Mountain uh, movement or whatever and and transition people involved in transition how do you yeah. how have you observed or or thought about the relationship there what what what's what's in common and what's distinct between them do you think. Well, I've noticed a lot of transition people involved in Dark Mountain, some of them kind of at the heart of the project, actually. Um, I think what the projects have in common is that they are both open to the reality that I've just been talking about of this future in which things are going to change, whether we like it or not. And this path that we're on at the moment, that our culture is on at the moment, isn't going to continue and that a, a different future needs to be prepared for in different ways. I mean, there are obviously differences as well. Transition seems to me to be a much more kind of practical engagement with the on the ground stuff. Dark Mountain is really uh, an artistic project. It's a, it's a writer's and a, and, and a creator's project, I suppose, in the, in the broader sense of the word. Um, we produce books and we produce art and we hold events um, which feature music and all sorts of um, creative responses. Um, and we're talking about trying to reimagine the stories that we've told ourselves on a on a on a creative level. Um, so I, 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 you know, there, there's an obvious difference there. But yeah, the similarity between them is that they're both responses that seek to, I think, have a realistic assessment of of what's possible and what isn't. And I think often in the mainstream green movement, I don't see enough honest assessment of what isn't possible people just don't like to talk about that and i think that at this stage we need to be able to put our hands up and say well here are the things we can't do um how do we live with that and um i think as a culture we're very bad at doing that and um uh, do you see any kind of within the more mainstream environmental movement why why do you where does that inability come from do you think um well I mean, they need it's to politics. sort of keep telling this story that actually we can still turn it all around. And yeah, I mean, particularly the ones who say, and we can still have growth too. Yes, I know. It's so common, isn't it? It's politics, I think. I mean, I've thought about this a lot. What, what, what you're really looking at here is um, a, a movement. If you look at the big green NGOs, um, they need public support. They, that's where they get their funds from. And that's where they get their petitions signed. And that's how they get people to go on their marches. If you look at... Uh, political parties like the Green Party, they need to get the votes in, which means that to some degree they're all going to have to tell people what they want to hear. And what people want to hear in a society in which we're all soaked in material wealth is it's all going to be fine for you. You won't have to give up your nice cars or your houses or your holidays in the sun. We can somehow make those things, quote, sustainable. Um, and I've lost count of the number of sort of, quote, mainstream Greens I have met or I know who don't really believe that for a minute. But they have to say it because otherwise nobody listens. 
And we have this kind of cult of optimism in this culture where people don't want to hear bad news. They just turn off. Um, and, you know, the Greens have discovered this to their cost over the last 50 years. Every time you, you tell people about climate change or any other horrible thing that's happening already or is coming along, people just don't want to hear it. I mean, it, we've got this whole global movement of climate change denial now, which is an incredible thing, really, psychologically. Millions of people out there busily working away, pretending it's not even happening. Um, and if, you know, if you're a mainstream green organization and you need a lot of people to buy into your message, it's very, very difficult to give them bad news. And it's very, very difficult to question um, all of the stories and all of the assumptions that the whole culture that you work in is based on. I don't really blame anyone for that. You've got to sort of work within the barriers that, that, that are kind of set for you. But the, the limitations there, uh, I think, are very clear. And it, it, it just seems very obvious to me that you can't give out any kind of honest green message on a wide scale in a society in which people are as addicted to material prosperity as we are here. It's just not possible. Um, and that leaves, you know, Friends of the Earth and Greenpeace and the Green Party and all the rest of them in a, in a very difficult position, an impossible one, really. So when we're in a situation where where most where lots of Somerset is underwater and Cornwall crumbling into the sea and the River Thames is, you know, really, it's been extraordinary the coverage over the last week or two. How rarely anybody's mentioned climate change. Mm, absolutely, I was thinking the same thing myself. I mean, really, really extraordinary it seems. And and so, um, if if you're in a situation where where the impacts are so clear and nobody puts two and two together, is there still a role for you in terms of? raising awareness and talking about it or is it is 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 the idea that we can get people to care about this a lost cause do you think well i think one of the reasons i moved on from sort of green campaigning to dark mountain of the kind of writing i do now is that i kind of gave up on raising awareness to be honest uh, as a useful response um i think that there's this sort of false assumption within the green movement and within all political movements actually um that that if you give people enough information and you raise their awareness, then that will lead to action. And I, I believe that for a long time. And I can remember in the early 1990s, you know, writing about climate change and campaigning on it and things when no one else in the mainstream was talking about it. It was just a few greenies. And, you know, we all believed that if, if, if people knew about this on a big scale, then obviously they would act. It's just so obvious that, that they would act, isn't it? Um, and, and now they know about it on a wide scale. It's been on the front pages of newspapers for the last 10 years. Everybody knows about climate change. All the information is out there and nothing is happening. And as you say, you can get into this astonishing situation where half the country's flooding um, and hardly anyone talks about it. They don't even ask the questions. No one in the media even asks the questions. Mm. So what does it take? And I think there's a bit of a misunderstanding. You, we assume people are being rational all the time and that if you give them facts, they'll act on the facts. And that's not really what happens. We all just make assumptions based on our prejudices and intuitions and then we use the facts to back them up. And uh, call me cynical, but I think that's the way that humans work. Mm. I think that's the way that we all work. So I think if you start off from the assumption that if you raise enough awareness, things will change, I think you're in the wrong place. Um, and so my conclusion personally is that the useful thing that you can do is to keep telling the truth, to keep being honest about what's actually happening, to provide information for people who want to act on it, but also just to kind of hunker down really um, and and get on with doing what useful work you can do at your local level um, without imagining that you can change the way that society is going because I don't think at the moment that you can. So is there anything that you would 
March for now? Um, well, I think this stuff is all really about distinguishing between what you can do and what you can't do. It's very simple. Um, I mean, I've been involved in a campaign to stop a supermarket being built in my town for the last three years. Um, and I've been involved in that quite heavily because it seems like a winnable battle. Um, it's not going to stop the march of supermarkets more generally, but it might save this small town centre, and that seems to be to be worth doing. So, you know, if there's something specific you can march against, then it's a good thing. I mean, marching against the Keystone Pipeline seems like a good thing. That might be a winnable battle as well. But there's a difference between trying to prevent a particular pipeline or a particular fracking rig or a particular supermarket and trying to change the whole of human behaviour and stop climate change. They're not the same thing. Um, I think you can win small battles and local battles, and I think you can protect what you can protect, and I think you can continue to tell the truth. Um, but if you set yourself up to try and change the behaviour of industrial society or stop the climate changing or, or change the direction of material progress, then you're going to be very disappointed, as a lot of people have been. So when, when one takes that step across, or when one goes up the dark mountain, as it were, and ex and kind of accepts that, there's not a great deal that you can do and the climate is going in a particular direction and that's just how it is. Where, where do you find, um, what gets, what, what gets you out of bed in the morning? What's the, well, the funny thing is that, um, this was, this was a surprise to me really. Um, people sometimes look at dark mountain from the outside and assume it's very depressing and doom laden. And they say, oh, where's the hope? Where's the hope? We want hope people have this addiction to hope they want to be able to hope for things even if there isn't a basis for it but i'm finding that since i gave up on false hope and since i gave up having to pretend that we could save things we couldn't save or stop things we couldn't stop um i feel a lot better i have to say because i i, I feel I, I felt like for a long time and i know quite a few other people have felt this too um that i was like a priest who uh, didn't actually believe in the religion i was telling everyone about but i felt like i had to keep telling them because that was my job and mm. I, I get this sense from a lot of sort of green leaders and spokespeople and all the rest of it they don't really believe in what they're saying in a lot of ways they don't really believe that the world can be turned around and we can stop climate change and have a peaceful sustainable development for 10 billion people but they kind of have to say it because they don't know what else to say but once you stop saying it once you stop saying things that you actually believe to be untrue the alternative is not to collapse in despair. It's to think, okay, well, what can I actually usefully do then? Here I am at this moment in time. These changes are happening. I'm living through them. What can I still usefully do? And everyone will have different answers to those questions. Um, you know, my answer is I can continue to write in a way which I know inspires and informs some people. I can continue to try and make my life as low impact as possible. I can have some land and work on it. I can bring my kids up in a way that I consider to be good. Um, and that's what I do, uh, and that seems to be a useful response um, with with the kind of powers that I've got, and that will be different for everybody. But once you stop having to pretend that you can do everything, the alternative is to say, well, I can do something. What is it? And for me, that's like a great weight off my shoulders. I suppose for lots of people, the idea of giving up on the idea of being able to hold things back Mm. Uh, feels like um, uh, an acceptance of something that just feels completely unacceptable, really. Yeah, really. I think so. And I think that's because of our illusion of control. Um, that, uh, this whole culture of ours, this whole civilization is built on this illusion of control. Um, it goes right back to the Enlightenment and beyond the idea that we're going to control nature, we're going to control um, the future, we're going to have a, a great plan to roll out. 
for how civilization is going to look. It's not going to happen. Um, and we need to learn to accept, as most traditional cultures have accepted, that we're not in control of the wider world beyond our, our culture and that we should learn to let go of some of it. And we're going through a climate change event now. It's not the first one this planet's experienced by any means. It's the first one on this scale that humans have experienced. Um, you know, we created it. It's happening now. Um, the levels of carbon dioxide are higher than they have been for thousands of years. They're going up at a record rate. That's not going to turn around. And even if it did at this point, the change is coming. So there's no point in pretending that it's not happening. It doesn't help anybody. Um, it's, it's better to be flexible and say, well, here we are. Here we are. What do we do now? That doesn't mean you can't do anything to prevent things from getting worse. It doesn't mean you give up. It just means that you adjust your expectations, I suppose. But there have been, I mean, looking back through history, there have been times when people have mobilized and have made big sort of changes happening. And, you know, even the kind of uh, changes of attitude towards smoking in public over the last 10, 15 years. Uh, you know, I mean, there, one can point to examples where uh, where people have led within a relatively short period of time to quite major kind of changes in how we do things. Mm, that's possible, yeah, and no, I'm sure that will continue. And you can see that our changes to um, to the environment have, have have been quite rapid over the last twenty years or so. Um, people's I, people's ideas about things as basic as recycling, um, even things like flying and driving, are starting to change a little bit in countries like this. Um, but it's not it's not sort of relevant to the scale of the problem. Um, it's not that it's not happening. It, it is happening and it'll probably happen a lot faster when people finally make the connection between climate change and the weather events that were happening, which I think they will, because as this goes on and on and on and gets worse and worse, people are not going to be able to pretend it's not happening anymore. Mm. So I think I think that that will happen. That's inevitable that people's attitudes will change and people will do things. Um, and, you know, people will keep doing things like campaigning against fracking, which hopefully will prevent it from happening. And that's all good. I don't want to be critical of it or say that people shouldn't do it. It's great. But in the grand scale of things, um, we are now committed to a big climate change. Um, in the grand scale of things, that there's a rolling extinction going on, which hopefully we can hold back as much as possible, but isn't going to stop. We're not getting back to the point we were at 50 years ago. It's not going to happen. Um, mm. And that doesn't mean you've lost, you give up, you go home and cry. It just means, as I say, you adjust to, to the, the rolling reality of it. We're going to have to go with it now. The floods aren't going to stop coming at this point. I don't know if... Did, did you see any of the stuff recently that David Holmgren's post, Crash on Demand, kind of generated? I haven't read the post, but, I've, yeah, I've seen lots of people writing about it. I mean, his his basic argument was that uh, economic growth uh, and the growth-based economy is the thing which is uh, frying the biosphere and pushing us over the edge. Mm. And the only way to have any hope of... Of, of saving that is to deliberately uh, is 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 a is a economic collapse because that's the only way it stops growing, mm. and that actually we would be well advised to put some or all of our energy into actually withdrawing our support from the economic growth model in such a way that we deliberately bring about its its collapse. I wondered what your thoughts were on his on his approach. Well, it's interesting because I think there's going to be a lot more of this in coming years. I mean, you've, you've probably seen the kind of rise of deep green resistance as well. That's a sort of uh, another slightly more radical, angry response to this idea that um, 
the thing that's destroying the world is the, the capitalist machine and therefore you must destroy the capitalist machine. I mean, he's quite right, really. Obviously, the thing that's destroying the world is economic growth. More broadly, the thing that's destroying the world is advanced capitalism. Um, what you do about that, on the other hand, is is, is another matter. And I haven't read Holmgren's paper, so I, I can't really comment on it. Um, in terms of withdrawing your support from the machine, as it were, it seems like a great idea to me. Um, and that's what I'm trying to do myself. Um, I, I don't think you'd ever get enough people to withdraw their support from it to to crash it. But to be honest, I think it's going to—it's starting to crash itself anyway. Um, it seems to be completely unsustainable. But again, this is um, this is a question of everybody's individual response to the crisis that we're going through now. And I think everybody's individual response will be different. And his seems to be, as far as I can tell, quite sensible. Whether it will have the effect is that it wants to have, I don't know. But What's clear, I suppose, from an ethical point of view to me is that this industrial machine is destroying the world. We know that. Uh, and so it seems to be an obvious ethical obligation, really, to withdraw your support from it and your engagement with it as much as possible. But of course, the reality is that we're all stuck in it just by being born into our generation in this country. Um, it's It's almost impossible to completely withdraw yourself. But you can you can still do what you can do and you know you you can't predict the future how many people are going to do that kind of thing we don't know we anything going to happen over the next 10 or 20 years there could be a another economic crash there could be a rapid climate change event and everything could change and everybody's attitudes could go out of the window and one thing that does um um one thing that is exciting i suppose is that we shouldn't underestimate how quickly people's attitudes can change when circumstances change, um, if we had a giant economic collapse, um, if we had rolling climate change, if we had all this stuff coming at once and making it very, very obvious that we weren't going to keep on going in the same direction, then anything could happen. Um, that doesn't mean we could reverse everything and get back to how it was, but we could have a very, very different attitude. At some stage, our intellectual assumption that capitalist growth and progress are the only game in town is going to collapse. Um, how soon that will be, I don't know, but it will happen because it so obviously is undermining even its own assumptions. And when that happens, then things start to get really interesting. But in what direction, we have no idea at all. Mm. I mean, and is there not a case that um, you know, with 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 the idea that you you um, you you disengage uh, as a as as a response that actually what's needed now more than anything is people who have a real understanding of the situation and the context and where we find ourselves actually putting themselves forward for positions of leadership whether at the local or the national scale and actually kind of stepping up rather than rather than retreating is this not a time for the people who've spent so many years uh, working on this stuff to actually try and step across and and take some kind of leadership at this point? Well, my feeling on that is that we're living in a decaying system and trying to take leadership roles within the decaying system is not going to lead to anything. Um, you know, you can't change... You can't... You can't offer solutions with the same mindset that created the problems. And, you know, look what's happened to the Green Party. Um, I don't know. I mean... You, you can spend 50 years trying to get seats in Parliament. You could, if if you try and stand for leadership roles or step up to leadership roles in 
the society that we're in at the moment, you will automatically get sucked into that society's assumptions about growth and progress and all the rest of it. Um, I think it's more interesting. I think we're in a what's called a pregnant widow moment, moment at the moment, actually, where the old king is dead uh, and the king's wife is pregnant and we don't have a new king yet and we've no idea what the new regime is going to be. We're, we're strangely in transition, actually, um, between the old world of, of growth and progress and material uh, um, assumptions of, of wealth for all and a new world which is going to see uh, much more environmental chaos and uh, much more poverty uh, and much more instability but also probably completely new forms of politics uh, and and philosophy and all the rest of it that are going to come from the changes that we've already initiated and we don't know what shape they're going to take I think the most useful role for people who I don't know you might call them leaders or whatever but anyone who's been working on, on on the stuff that we're talking about is to actually keep doing what they're doing to stand apart from things not to try and necessarily become leaders in what's going on at the moment but to stand apart from things to keep cranking out the radical ideas to keep thinking about how things are changing and to stay nimble and to, and to improvise not to get bogged down by ideologies or get stuck in party systems or any of that stuff but just say look things are changing radically um, the useful stuff to do at the moment is to protect what we can protect and keep developing our ideas um, you know, as as things happen. And I think there will be more and more appetite for people who have radical views or what are seen now as radical views um, over the next decades because so clearly the thing is coming apart and the answers are not going to come from within. So actually standing outside and maintaining a clear focus and continuing to um, expose what's wrong and try and come up with alternatives I think is the most useful thing to do at the moment. And lastly, do you want to just tell us a little bit about The Wake? Yeah, well, having said all that, this is a completely different thing for me, really, <laughs> in many ways. Uh, this, well, this is a novel. Um, I, it's, it's taken me four years to write. It's slightly sprung from um, my work on Real England. It's set in England a thousand years ago. Um, the relationship with what we've just been talking about is that it's uh, a novel of collapse. It's a post-apocalyptic novel, but it's set a thousand years in the past instead of a thousand years in the future. Um, it's set after the Norman Conquest and it looks at what happens to a man's outer and inner world when everything that he's known starts to fall away um, and what kind of personality reacts well to that and what kind of personality reacts badly to it. And as I say, I spent four years quite intensely researching it and I ended up actually writing it in its own language because I discovered that it was impossible to write about the Anglo-Saxon English using modern English. It just didn't work. So I ended up insanely inventing a, a kind of middle language between Old English and Modern English, which certainly makes the book interesting. And has got quite a few nice comments already before it's come out, but it's um, it's published in April by Unbound. And it's um, it's what the relationship is between a lot of what we've been talking about here, I suppose, and, and, and particularly Dark Mountain, is that what we're having to do now, I think, is reimagine our stories. Um, because the key thing that we said in the Dark Mountain Manifesto is that civilizations are primarily built on stories. And the things that we believe about ourselves and our place in the world determine how we act towards it. Um, and so if, you're, if the world changes, your stories have to change. When things collapse and when your assumptions collapse and when the environment around you changes radically, then the stories you tell yourself about your place within it have to change as well. And if they don't, um, then you're in trouble because your old stories are not going to work. 
Um, and that the novel is really about a man whose stories don't work anymore. Um, and in that sense, although it's not intended to be any kind of allegory, um, there's an obvious connection with, with the, the sort of England and the world that we're living through at the moment, in which the stories are starting to fall apart, but we don't know what the new ones should be. Mm. And I think just probably the final thing I'd say about all of this is that if Dark Mountain is about anything, and if what I've done since I wrote that essay has been about anything, it's primarily been about holding on to that that really uncertain, doubtful place where the old stories have fallen apart, but you don't know what the new ones should be, and where the old systems have gone down, but you don't know what the new systems are going to be. We're in really uncertain times, and it's very tempting to cling on to any kind of certainty at all, even if it's unconvincing. But the really honest and difficult thing to do, which we all have trouble doing, is to try and hold that uncertain place and to be flexible enough to react to what's actually happening rather than what you'd like to be happening. And it's very difficult... Um, I think especially for those of us who are brought up in a culture of certainty, but it seems to me to be a really useful thing to try and train yourself to do at the moment.